You are listening to the City on a Hill DFW Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church or to support these ministries, visit us at cityonahilldfw.com. church. How are we doing? Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. Our principal text this morning is going to be verses 9 through 13. I think one of the most shocking parts of the Christian faith, of becoming a Christian really, the process of becoming a believer, uh, one that rarely ever gets talked about that I almost never hear in any kind of gospel presentation is the fact that when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you believe the gospel and are born again, Things usually do not get easier for you, uh, but actually get increasingly more difficult for you. Some of you know this by experience already. There is this idea in the world today that if you place your faith in Jesus and you become a Christian, life is going to get easier. Now, to be clear, life will get better, right? You'll have joy, you'll have peace, forgiveness, the assurance of an eternity with a God who loves you. There is no better possible outcome than living a life submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ. Your life will get infinitely better. It does not get easier. It gets substantially harder. The question is why? It's because you, for the first time, see reality for what it actually is. The veil that once covered your eyes and allowed you to just sort of saunter through life with no real awareness of why things are the way they are, that veil is removed when you come to faith in Jesus and you see the world for what it really is. It's like the great, groundbreaking, 1999, movie-changing flick, The Matrix. I'm a, I'm a child of the 90s, so I mean, The Matrix was an event when it came out, right? If you've ever seen it, it illustrates this really well. So, right, they take the red pill, they're unplugged from fantasy land, what they thought was reality turns out is a lie, and they, for the first time, experience what it's actually like to be alive in the real world. It's better, it's definitely not easier. It's true for Christians as well. It's not only when we come to faith in Jesus that this is true, but it's it's my conviction that this is actually even more increased when you are publicly baptized, when you publicly profess your faith in Jesus Christ through the ordinance of baptism. It is like firing a shot across the bow at both Satan and his demonic cohort. It's an act of war. Life gets infinitely better when you're born again. You receive the spirit of God. You bask in the glorious forgiveness of Jesus. You're free from the burden of guilt and shame and sin. You, for the first time, know what it means to be truly loved, to have peace, to feel eternal security. And then the war begins. And then the war begins. You don't hear that a lot in a lot of gospel presentations, right? You don't hear people share the gospel and and say to people, you're going to love it. It's unlike anything you have ever experienced in your entire life. Life is going to be incredible for you. Well, actually, it's going to be very hard. Uh, You'll experience spiritual warfare up until the moment you draw your last breath from an infernal devil who hates God and now by extension hates you. But, I mean, it's going to be great. You're going to love it. This morning in Mark's gospel, we come to, I think, a very timely passage uh, given the number of baptisms we've had this morning, and that is the account of the baptism of Jesus. And what we find is exactly this pattern in this text. Baptism followed by temptation. Baptism followed by intense struggle. Baptism 
followed by war. If you have your Bibles open to Mark 1, we're going to walk through the text this morning, unpack it as we go, and I want to just give you a couple thoughts at the end of this text uh, as we leave here this morning. Let's start with the baptism of Jesus. Look at verses 9 through 11. It says, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. A couple of quick notes before we really get into the the thick of this. First, notice the opening phrase here, in those days. What What days does Mark have in mind when he says this? He's talking about the days that were described in verses 2 through 8 just prior to this. Remember, John the Baptist was in the wilderness. It says that people were coming from Judea and all of Jerusalem to be baptized with a baptism of repentance. During that same time frame, when all of these people are coming out of the woodwork to be baptized, Jesus arrives on the scene. Now, it's subtle, but notice how Mark sets Jesus apart from everyone else. Everyone else who's coming to be baptized is coming from Judea and the city of God, Jerusalem, the great bastion of godliness. Really, not at all. The great bastion of rebellion historically, but that's for another time. But notice where Jesus is described from coming. Nazareth in Galilee. Now the question is, what is significant about Nazareth in Galilee? Here's the answer. Literally nothing. Nothing. There could not be anything more insignificant than Nazareth. Nazareth is a small backwoods town in the southwestern portion of Galilee. It's never mentioned in the Old Testament. It's never mentioned in the Jewish Talmud. Uh, The Jewish historian Josephus, from whom we get a ton, a wealth of information concerning what Judaism was like in the first century, he never mentions it. It's completely insignificant. It would be like, it would be like saying, and people were coming from Dallas and Fort Worth to be baptized by John in the Trinity. Right? The only baptism that makes you not clean. And in those days, Jesus from Glen Rose was baptized, right? Like, where? Now, some of you may know Glen Rose. I, we're in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. If you're from anywhere else in the country, you've never heard of Glen Rose before. Nazareth is not that special. That is why precisely this is such a special detail. As a Jewish person, you would expect Jesus, the son of God, the Davidic king, the coming Messiah, to come from the city of God, Jerusalem, or at least a city you've heard of, right? New York or LA, the Messiah would never come from LA, but you know, somewhere big and well-known. But Jesus, as you're gonna see throughout this earthly ministry, is gonna turn every expectation of who he is and what he will do upside down on its head. Now, uh, in verses 10 through 11, we get one of the clearest Trinitarian accounts of the nature of God. Pause for a moment, and let's talk about that word Trinitarian, because I realize that for some of you, you're very clear on what that means. For others of you, you're like, I think I've heard that word before, Trinity, he just mentioned that, the river, or maybe the person from the matrix, I'm not real sure, but let's talk about it. We believe it's sitting on a hill, And and historical Christianity is in firm agreement with this, that God is three persons but one substance. He is triune in nature. 
you know me well, you know that I love church history. I love the confessions and the creeds. We actually quoted part of the Nicene Creed two weeks ago when we talked about the nature of Jesus and that opening message. There's another well-known creed known as the Athanasian Creed. It, it stems from the fourth, fifth century, attributed to the theology of a church father uh, by, by the name of Athanasius. And this creed was written in particular to discuss or articulate well the belief of the Trinitarian nature of God. It states this, it says, for the Father is one person, the Son is another, and the Holy Spirit is another. But the Godhead of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit is one, the glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. It goes on to say, so the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, and yet there are not three gods but one God. The Father is Lord, the Son is Lord, the Holy Spirit is Lord, and yet there are not three lords, but one Lord. This idea of the Trinity, as hard as it is to conceptualize in our finite minds, is actually not that controversial, historically speaking. The word Trinity, although it is never found in the Bible, you never see that word, it's, it's a word that's brought out later to describe something that very clearly is in the Bible. So for example, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, the opening part of a very important Jewish passage known as the Shema, it says, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. One God, monotheism, right? One God. And yet, when you get to the New Testament, the Father is called God in Philippians 1-2. The Son is called God in Titus 2-13. The Spirit is called God in Acts 5, verses 3 and 4. Even in Genesis chapter 1, you have God saying, let us make man in our image. There's this idea of relationality or distinct personhood within the triune nature of God. So God is three persons who are all called God, and they're all separate persons. They're not the same persons, and they coexist together. Meaning, God isn't like first the Father, and then he kind of shows up as the Son, and then he sort of shows up as the Spirit in these different modes. That's called modalism, it's a heresy. They are three distinct, coexistent, co-eternal persons. And we see the evidence of that most clearly in the account of Jesus' baptism. Look at verses 10 and 11 again. Let's just read it again. It says, And when Jesus came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Notice who all is here in this account of Jesus' baptism and what they are all doing. First, we see the baptism of the Son. Jesus is in the river with John the Baptist. It says that he is baptized. Notice it says when he came up out of the water. I don't think I need to articulate this, but just as a side note, because it is important, Jesus wasn't sprinkled in his baptism, right? Like many of you are sprinkled in the front row when we baptize up here. He was in the river. He came up out of the water, which implies first he went down in the water. He was fully immersed in the water before he came up out of the water. That's why we practice baptism by immersion. It's the example of Jesus. It's what the word means, baptizo in the Greek. It's a word that means to fully immerse. In the ancient world, it was a word that would describe the sinking of a ship. If a ship sank in the ocean, it was baptized. So we see the baptism of the Son happening, but also notice we see the presence of the Spirit. 
Look at verse 10 again. It says, Jesus saw the heavens being torn open. Now, this is a reference in the Old Testament that is pretty easy to miss if you're not looking for it. In Isaiah chapter 64, verse 1, the prophet Isaiah pleads with God to come down from heaven and make his presence known in the midst of his people. Uh, Isaiah 64, 1, it says, oh, that you would rend the heavens. That's a word that we don't use all that often. If, I mean, last time you used the word rend, be honest, not a hand better go up. I know you are not using that word. It's a word that means to tear open. Oh, that you would tear the heavens open and come down that the mountains might quake at your presence. What does Jesus see when he is coming up out of the water? The rending of the heavens, the tearing open of the heavens, and God the Holy Spirit coming down to rest upon him. And notice that it says descending on him like a dove. Isaiah, what he longed to see, Jesus saw at his baptism. And again, this is just another side note, but I think it's important that we get our, our facts straight, that we're clear about the way this thing went down. The Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus like a dove. It was not an actual dove, okay? Now, you may laugh at that, like, yeah, okay, but I'm going to show you a picture that's very prevalent. There's a lot of them out there of Jesus being baptized, and what is above him? A dove. Now, that's not what the text says. It doesn't say, and the Holy Spirit, taking on the form of a dove, flew over Jesus and cacawed, right? Or whatever they do. I don't know what they do. Doves, totally. Some of you, a what? A coo? Coo, right, yeah, a little nicer. That's not what it says. It says that he descended on him like a dove, in the same manner as a dove would do, the Holy Spirit did. And by the way, this is another fulfillment of the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 4. Speaking about the Messiah and how the Spirit of the Lord is going to come down and rest upon him. It says, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of Yahweh will rest upon him, and the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight will be in the fear of Yahweh, and he will not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And this is the part that hadn't happened yet. You ready for it? And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. That's part two. We haven't gotten there yet. Presence of the Spirit is very clearly seen in Mark's account of Jesus' baptism. And it is evidence that Jesus' claim as the Messiah is valid. This is exactly what Isaiah said would happen. The heavens would be torn open. The Spirit of God would come down upon his servant and rest on his Messiah, and he will rule and reign in justice. So we see the baptism of the Son, the presence of the Spirit coming down on him, and then we hear the pleasure of the Father. Verse 11, and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. It's a clear picture the Trinitarian nature of God, the Son in the waters being baptized by the forerunner, John the Baptist, the Spirit coming down from the heavens, the Father articulating his pleasure concerning his Son and his perfect obedience. All of them, God, not three gods, but one God, not three lords, but one Lord. Now, I mentioned in week one in our introduction to this book that Mark's gospel is an action gospel fast, right? It, it just keeps moving. It doesn't let you breathe. It just, you just keep going. It never slows down. Right when you're savoring the beauty and the majesty of this Trinitarian God in full relational glory, in this moment of baptism, 
you are immediately thrust into the next scene. Look at verse 12. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. Now, remember what I said in the beginning about baptism being an act of war, that how after baptism, things get very difficult typically for a Christian? We see that here in the life of the Lord as well. We move from the baptism of Jesus to the temptation of Jesus. Read verse 12 again, this time with verse 13. It says, The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Immediately following his baptism, the war begins. And for 40 days, Jesus is tempted by Satan in the wilderness. Now, Mark's gospel doesn't give us as many details as Luke and Matthew do. Luke and Matthew, if you remember in their accounts, there's actually a whole dialogue between Jesus and Satan, where Satan comes and tempts Jesus, and Jesus responds to him by quoting scripture. Mark does not provide that dialogue for us, but what he does provide is the amount of time that Jesus spends in the wilderness, and this amount of time, this number, is important because it signifies at least two things. He says that he's there for 40 days. What is significant about the number 40 in connection to Jesus? At least two things. Number one, it's likely connected to Israel in the wilderness. If you remember, right after Israel is redeemed out of Egypt, they cross the Red Sea through the parting of the waters. You know, Moses lifts his staff up, the waters close, the Egyptians drown. They go over the hilltop, the sun is rising, a new day is born. We're here, the promised land, praise God, the end, happy ending. It's actually not how it works, right? They spend 40 years wandering around because of the hardness of their hearts. In fact, their inability to faithfully obey God's commands leaves them in the wilderness for 40 days in such a way that actually the entire Egyptian generation that comes out of Egypt in the Passover dies before they are let into the promised land. Deuteronomy 8.2, and you shall remember the whole way that Yahweh your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. The way he humbles you, testing you're testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Israel failed to be faithful to God's commandments. And he spent, they spent 40 years in the wilderness as a result being disciplined by the hand of God. Now, think about this for a moment. How is Israel referred to as by some of the other prophets? Think Hosea, minor prophet. What does Hosea refer to Israel like? A son. Israel is like a son. Hosea 11.1, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Matthew actually goes on to quote this in his account and apply it to Christ to show that Israel is like a son of God and this son failed to be faithfully obedient to God. But Jesus is not like a son to God. He is the son of God and he is perfectly faithful during these 40 days of temptation. The number 40 also brings to mind though Moses on Mount Sinai. Moses on Mount Sinai. In Exodus chapter 34, the prophet Moses travels up to the top of Sinai to receive and write down God's top 10. Remember the Ten Commandments? And verses 27 and 28, it says, And Yahweh said to Moses, Write these words, for in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Moses is alone with God, it says, for 40 days and 40 nights. He's fasting, by the way, just like Jesus. Mark doesn't give us that detail, but again, the other accounts do. 
And so, again, the question is, what is the connection between Moses and Jesus? Well, according to Deuteronomy, Moses serves as the greatest prophet that has ever lived. There's no one greater than Moses. Deuteronomy 34.10, and there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses. What makes him special? It says, whom the Lord knew face to face. This is what made him the greatest prophet, is other prophets received revelation from God through various visions, dreams, other means, but Moses knew God face to face. There's no one like Moses until Jesus. In Acts chapter 3, Peter reminds the people of God of Moses' words that one day God would send another prophet on the same level as Moses. Deuteronomy 18.15, Moses says in that passage, Peter is quoting it, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet just like me from your brothers. And then Peter goes on to say in verse 26, and God sent you this prophet, the one just like Moses, and you crucified him. So get this, Jesus in the wilderness He's being tempted by Satan. He fulfills in 40 days what Israel and Moses could not. He is the better Israel. He is the greater Moses. He is not merely one like the Son of God. He is God the Son. He is not a prophet who knew God face to face, but to look Jesus in the face is to look at the face of God himself. In other words, there's design here in his temptation and struggle. There is purpose in these 40 days. Something important is happening by design. This is, I think, the most crucial detail of verses 9 through 13. As cool as the other kind of Old Testament fulfillment passages are, the most striking detail to me in this is who is responsible for Jesus' temptation and suffering in the wilderness. Did you notice who it is? It's not Satan. Satan doesn't like sneak onto the scene and sort of lure him out, catch him unaware. Who is responsible for this? It's the Spirit. Look at verse 12 again. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. This is a stunning detail. It's a detail that I had admittedly never noticed before this week or or never really fully connected with until this week as I was preparing this message. I've never fully paid attention to the very clear message that it is the Spirit of God who leads Jesus to a point of temptation before the enemy. And if, listen to this, the Spirit leads Jesus into temptation or into a place where he comes under the attack of the enemy, he almost certainly will lead you and me as well. That might shock some of you. Even worse, that might worry some of you. No, the the Spirit is supposed to lead us away from trouble, Pastor Derek. No, the Spirit is supposed to comfort us. That's what Jesus called him, the comforter. He's going to guide us away from being attacked by the enemy. Are you really saying, Pastor Derek, that the Spirit of God is responsible for leading people into places wherein they might come under the attack of Satan? No, that's not what I'm saying at all. That's what Mark is saying. What I want to suggest to you, as scary as this may sound, is that this is actually the most comforting detail of this story. It's comforting because it indicates that this is not a surprise attack. 
that God was prepared for it, that it was purposeful, that there was design here. It's not that, that, that when, when, a, when a, an attack comes, the spirit is like, whoa, what are we going to do, right? There's purpose and design. I want you to get this truth. The spirit of God is not reactive in spiritual warfare. He is proactive in spiritual warfare. Let me say that again. The spirit of God is not reactive in spiritual warfare. He is proactive in spiritual warfare. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean that he's never caught off guard. If the spirit is reactive to spiritual warfare, in other words, when an attack comes and the spirit is now having to react to it, it implies the spirit was not aware of the attack prior to its coming. And now it's got to kind of figure out, he's got to figure out what he's going to do in your life. That's not the message of scripture, nor is that the quality or character or nature of God. If the spirit is God and the scripture says that he is, then he is aware infinitely and sovereign over all things that take place. Meaning that the spirit is active not only in fighting spiritual warfare, but also in inciting spiritual warfare. That might freak you out. There's that old adage, God will never give you more than you can handle. It is not biblical. In fact, it's the opposite It's the opposite of what scripture says. God will not only give you more than you can handle, he'll do it regularly in order to make you more like Jesus. Because in those moments where God delivers you into a place where you are not able to handle that situation, it forces you to rely on the Father. It forces you to be fully dependent on God and understand this, to be fully dependent upon God is to be like Jesus Christ. Jesus is fully reliant upon the Father. What did Jesus say in John 5, 19? Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Jesus is fully dependent upon the the will of the Father. The Son must do the Father's will. This is what Paul meant, by the way, in Philippians 2, 6 through 8, when he said, though Jesus was in the form of God... He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Why did Jesus die on the cross? Because it was his father's will for him to do so, and the son must do the will of the father. Now come back to the text. Why is Jesus thrust into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit to be tempted by Satan because it was his father's will for him to do so and the son must do the will of the father. Dear people of God, listen to me. If God the father will permit the perfect son to be led into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan, he will certainly permit us as well because we are no Jesus. The notion that God will not give you more than you can handle it's almost right. It's, it's almost there. In fact, we can amend one word and it'll be perfectly biblical. You ready? God will never give you more than he can handle. God will never give you more than he can handle. God will put you in positions that you are unable to handle, that he can handle, to teach you dependence upon him in those moments, to teach you to rely upon him in those moments, moments that only he is able to handle. And we see evidence of that in this passage. Who is ministering to Jesus this entire time? This is the angels. 
into verse 12. And the angels were ministering to him. So he's in the wilderness. Satan is attacking him. It says that he was uh, uh, surrounded by wild animals. This is not like a, a fun, like, zoo. He was out sightseeing, right? When you think wild animals, you have a DFW perspective. You're thinking, like, bobcats, right? Like, I don't... This is like lions. These are animals that are a serious, serious threat to you. He's in a very dangerous place. He is completely on his own, vulnerable, and yet the angels are ministering to him. How are they ministering to him? I have no idea. It doesn't say. It's the word, it's actually an interesting word, ministering, diakoneo. It's the verbal form of the word that we get our word deacon from. Diakonos, to serve a servant. So the angels were literally serving him during this time. I want to give you a couple thoughts on this passage before we end our time here. Number one, and this is very important, baptism does not bring an end to your struggles. It amplifies them. Baptism does not bring an end to your struggles. It amplifies them. Sometimes I I think... Christians have this idea in their mind that baptism is like sort of the carrot dangling in front of them. It's like the light at the end of the tunnel. You know, things are really hard and rough, and I I don't know how I'm going to get through all this, but I know that if I can just get to the Baptist, you know, the the baptistry, and I can can be baptized, I can celebrate this wonderful moment, things are just going to be great after that. Baptism is going to be the answer to all of my problems. Friends, it is the beginning of your problems. And I want you to connect with the reality that that not only impacts the baptized, but it impacts the, the church. It impacts the church as well. We've had an explosion of baptisms this year, including the five this morning. We've had 42 baptisms this year. We had 15 last year. It's exciting. It is worth celebrating, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's so exciting. God is on the move, but it's also why this message matters. 42 people were obedient to the Lord's commandment to profess faith publicly through the ordinance of baptism. That is a beautiful and a wonderful thing. But what that also means is that 42 people lined up their cannons and fired a shot into the center of hell and war began for them. 42 people put a target on their back when they said, Jesus is mine and I am his. They put themselves in the scope of the enemy. They were collateral damage before that. They were on the sideline. But the moment they put on that uniform, they they started wearing the, the mark of their king. You've made yourself a threat to the enemy and therefore you will come under attack. So we as a church, hear me when I say this, we need to celebrate these people being baptized. We need to high five them in the hallway. We need to give them a hug. We need to congratulate them. But more than anything else, We need to pray for them. We need to pray for their hearts and their minds and their families. If you have been baptized and you see someone be baptized here, I would love, culturally speaking, as a church, for you to walk up to them. This would be sort of the practice, for you to walk up to them, shake their hand or give them a hug, you know, high-five them, congratulate them, look them in the face and say, I am so excited for you. Welcome to the war. I'm praying for you. Because it is coming. It is coming. Maybe not today. Maybe not tomorrow. But it will happen. Here's the second thought I have. Is that the Lord is present in the midst of your struggles. 
Jesus was ministered to by the angels. Perhaps God will send angels to us as well. I mean, there is an economy of angels that the Bible briefly describes that we don't have a whole lot of details, but we do know that they interact with our world, often in ways, according to Hebrews, that we're not even aware that they're there, that they're, what they're doing. Perhaps God will send angels to his people as well in the same way that he does Jesus. But even more than that, in the presence of your struggle, is the presence of Jesus himself. Do you remember the words of the Lord right before the end of Matthew's gospel, right at the end of the Great Commission? Go, be, you know, make disciples, baptize them, teach them all that I've commanded you. What does he say at the very end? And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I am with you, not metaphorically, not because you hold a Bible or have a cross necklace or wear a Christian t-shirt or whatever. I am with you presently through the indwelling Holy Spirit in your body. Paul says your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. God is present with you. Some of you, I know, some of you are in the toughest season of your life right now. Brutal. Attack after attack. Loss after loss. Shot after shot. And you need to be reminded more than anyone else you have a church family that loves you here, but more than that, you have a God in Jesus Christ who will not forsake you, who is always with you, present in you through the indwelling Holy Spirit. That's a promise we need to be reminded of. God is for you if you belong to him. And what does Romans 8.31 say? If God is for us, who can be against us? I want to end with a time of prayer. I'd love for us to just pray momentarily for those baptized this morning and uh, those baptized this year and, and for anyone who is, uh, again, in, in sort of a season of warfare, of spiritual warfare or, or attack, that God would protect and comfort and guide and strengthen, build up as he is present with his people. Let's pray. Father, for the indwelling presence of your Holy Spirit, secured to us by the blood of your son Jesus we thank you we confess you are God you are above all things to you belongs glory and honor and power dominion forever and ever and so we submit ourselves to you as your servants by the blood of Jesus, we ask that you would protect the hearts and the minds of those baptized this morning, those baptized this year, and those in this church, servants of yours, who bear the mark of the King, who are under attack. We pray for protection. We pray that you would extinguish the fiery darts of the evil one, that you would comfort mend wounds, you would bind up the wounded, 
that you would remind them of your real presence in their lives through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Would we be a church that glorifies you in the way that we love one another as a witness to this world? Would you deepen in us a desire to know you, to love you, to love your word, to love your people, to love your commands? Thank you for your grace in our failures. We pray these things in the powerful name of the Son, the name above every name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being here this morning. There are elder nominee cards on the seat backs. If you would take one of those and fill those out. If someone comes to mind that meets the requirements of 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, we would love for you to submit those along with your $10,000 checks. God bless you. We'll see you next time. <laughs>